Thank you for listening to the Roundtable Consult, where we discuss political and social issues that matter to you from a spiritual, medical, and legal perspective. Join the conversation with your host, Attorney Sonia Madison and Dr. Mark Williams. Welcome to the Roundtable Consult. I am your host, Dr. Mark Williams, and I'm joined today by my ever-inventive and beautiful (laughs) co-host. Sonia Madison, attorney Sonia Madison. How you doing, Sonia? I'm doing all right. You know, always cringe, waiting to see how you're going to introduce me when I have a different hairstyle. So I'm like, oh, he's either going to be in trouble or he's going <laughs> to get a little praise. So it's, it's a flip toss, 50-50. <laughs> well, it's always a new uh, adventure to see what's coming next with the hair. I might have to start doing something different with my hair. Well, today I didn't cut it, so maybe that's something different <laughs> well it's dying the grays is a step <laughs> yeah yeah well you know dying them gray that did help them, you know, specifically making it gray right there those two specific hey. spots make me look distinguished i think <laughs> well as long as you're thinking so how your week been going <laughs> i don't even know i don't even remember this has been a great week matter of fact this is <laughs> so the first that you, you survived I guess it's not the first full week. I hired a new PA, and good Lord, I am so excited about that. <laughs> she um, she comes to she came to me with experience already knowing how to see ENT patients, already knowing how to use our electronic health record. And I'll tell you, I almost broke down in tears this week. I was like, man, I am so grateful that you know I've got somebody here to help relieve some of that burden. And I guess you don't realize sometimes just how much stress you're under and how much of a burden just carrying on in the day to day uh, can put on you until all of a sudden, especially if you're a type A type person, it seems like you just press through it, just press through it and press through it. And that's what I've been doing. And then all of a sudden, when the burden is released a little bit, relieved just a little bit, you're like, man, I can breathe. And uh, so this week, it was my first week of breathing in a while. So uh, I'm glad to be able to take those nice deep breaths. Well, congratulations. I'm not a type A person, so I don't necessarily relate to that. But congratulations on being able to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been watching Kamala? Any feedback or thoughts? You know, we got to be we got to be fair here so what yeah. are you thinking about how she's handling immigration that was not she she had a huge fumble this past week no question about it you know she really should have been better prepared to answer the questions that you knew were going to come um so i mean bottom line is you screwed up just <laughs> deal with it and move on to the next you know you should have had a better answer next time be better prepared well so is the screw up that she either hasn't gone to the border or hasn't planned to go to the border or is the screw up is just being unable to answer that question in a political way that makes her look decent. All of the above, all of the above. I mean, 
why she hasn't gone to the border yet is beyond me. I don't understand why you continue to give your political enemies that type of ammunition. Uh, there's no reason for her not to be able to go there. At least none that I can think of. And I haven't heard any political pundits give any <laughs> good reasons for why she shouldn't be there by now, right now. I will say she doesn't need to go to the border to do what she needs to do, because I, I think there's no question that the border is an issue. And that's why she's been given the task of handling immigration, which, you know, it's something to be said to give you know, uh, this new incomer, and I only say new to the role of, of vice president, but immigration has been a problem for numerous amount of years. And the expectation for her to fix it is unfair. Um, but she doesn't need to go to the border to fix it. I will say that. But as you said, I mean, there's been criticism of her not going to the border. So why not carve out, you know, half a day or a day <laughs> to go down and see it. I mean, again, I'm sure she knows what's there and I'm sure she knows what's the, it's an issue, but it, it, it's a distraction, the fact that that question comes up. But now what do you think of? Well, let me say this. I'm not sure I agree with your assessment that she doesn't need to go to the border to fix the problem because part of the problem is a public relations issue. And even something as quote unquote menial as going to the the border can have tremendous public relations impact. If you are trying to push forward immigration reform, you have to be able to um, garner the support of the American people. And granted, you know, the vast majority of the country already wants immigration reform. I think uh, the one thing that we all agree on, we just don't agree on how to do it. Um, but you still need to be able to rally public support for your position and for your initiative before you can actually even dream of getting congressional support for it. Well, I don't know if going to the border is going to rally public support. I mean, because again, the issue isn't what's happening at the border. The issue is, like you said, immigration reform is the policies and, and how we go about either the process of immigration or handling immigration in general, which has been an issue well before what's going on at the border right now. And so I, and I think in answering some of these questions, that's what she's saying is, hey, our processes is what needs to be addressed. And we've known for years and years before the outcry of going, what's happening at the border that we needed to have reform here. So I'm trying to look at the processes and see how we can better do that now. What's happening at the border is essentially what, what's going on once they get here. But now again, Guatemala. Did you agree with her telling them, do not come if you're, of course. <laughs> do not come. <laughs> of course, don't come. Why, why tell them to keep coming? And, you know, and, and we've already got our systems overwhelmed and, and we don't have any way to manage them uh, humanely, humanely. Why, why not tell them come? She has to do, has to do that. And she may get some criticism from people on the far left, but Come on, baby, you have to be realistic. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, I will say this now, uh, and this just goes to exemplify my lack of faith. We got a lot of evangelicals who are out there who saying close up the border because we believe in God. You know, we believe in boundaries. We believe anything is possible through God. Well, if you believe anything is possible through God, then, you know, you also believe where the scripture where it says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging bread. And and if, if God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and all of his resources are boundless, then we can and if we can access those things through faith, why are we limiting 
our faith to say, well, oh, no, we can't open our borders because we will go broke as a country. Now, somebody will probably capture this clip at some point or another. If I ever, ever run for political office, I am not advocating for open borders, but I'm saying if you really believed, like you say you believe Christian man or woman, then you would not necessarily be frightful of there not being enough. When Jesus fed the 5,000 multitude, he wasn't, oh my God, we only have two fish. What are we going to do? And five loaves of bread. Uh, no, he knew that there would be boundless resources. And if we had the faith of Jesus, this would not be an issue. Okay, well, if we want to be honest, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they're all immigrants. They all traveled through various parts and were welcome. And, and I'm sure a lot of people who are Christians would appreciate that they were embraced. I mean, even going back to Jesus. I mean, you know, he, he was welcomed despite, you know, not being in his homeland where his parents were from. So where Bud is and that's what we're talking about when we often talk about the asylum. And I think that's why some people, because I know AOC had criticized um, Kamala Harris. And of course, we know far right criticized her, but, you know, that was par for the course, no matter what she said. That means you're in the right place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But criticized her because it, it was as if to imply that she is um, discouraging people who are seeking asylum to come here. But I think what she was was saying is, hey, seek asylum in your home state or seek asylum. And because I think there's a process in Mexico where you can seek asylum before coming here so that when you're here, you've got your legal documents in order versus trying to do it when you get here and have to suffer through the chaos that's happening. But I agree with you. I think you know, while it is harsh to say don't come, at the same time, I mean, first of all, I feel like that's what Republicans want to happen. I mean, let Donald Trump say it. They, they don't want you to come. So I'm surprised that they're harping, you know, their righteous <laughs> uh, rhetoric, but nonetheless. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it, it's, it's an unfortunate message, but we do got to get our process in order so that it can run more smoothly than what it is now. Great. But we had a whole conversation on immigration. Didn't anticipate yes. that. <laughs> we'll see how we transition now. <laughs> well, well, speaking of asylum victims, you know, do we talk about, you know, we're going to do our whole month of mental health. We started last week talking about the foundation of faith and how that plays into mental health and, and what various figures as well as the Bible itself says about handling mental health. So, well, where are we going today, Dr. Williams? I want to introduce Dr. Irene Bean. She is a um, doctorate of nurse practice, and she practices here in Nashville, Tennessee. She operates her own uh, family practice um, as a as an independent nurse practitioner, which is uh, pretty unique. Uh, although I know a lot of people probably haven't are unaware that nurse practitioners can operate their own practices and she does that does it well but one of the things that i i really admire about her is that she went back to school got her doctorate of nurse practice and then specialized in mental health counseling and incorporates that into her family practice dr bean welcome to the show thank you for having me i also want to welcome um latrice roby williams williams roby Yes, this is my oldest niece. She is actually the program director for the Cobb Community Alliance 
to prevent substance abuse. Now, this is not all that she does. She she doesn't just work in substance abuse prevention. She works in suicide prevention. She does everything. And she lugs all of her kids around the country doing all other kinds of things that I'm like, just keep them down there in Atlanta. <laughs> but Latrice, welcome to the Roundtable Consult. Uh, Thank so you welcome. for having me. I'm excited. Yes. You tell Yes. <laughs> you look excited. Obviously, she doesn't watch the show. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, I do. So I'm ready for you. Uh oh, she's ready. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, my first question is I want you guys to kind of define abuse. I think oftentimes people think because they can manage a substance or they can um, be functional, then it's not abuse of that substance. So, at what point? Is a substance being abused? How do we define it? If I can start on that, like, and Dr. Bean can probably dive a little bit deeper, but what I'll say is that there is some discussion in the field about changing that language. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when you go to like the conferences and um, when you're actually with people that work in the field, we usually will say substance misuse, like the, the language is just tra- changing because when you when you think about a prescription drug, so I work in prescription drug and opioids, with prescription drugs and opioids, and it's like a prescription drug is not something that we usually think about um, as abusing, but if you misuse it, if you take something that's not prescribed to you, you take it um, at a time that on a that's not prescribed. So like, oh, my doctor told me I can take it once every eight hours, but I'm gonna take it at four hours because I'm not feeling good. That's misuse, which can lead you down a slippery slope of addiction. So that the language is kind of shifting in the industry around that abuse piece that that abuse language. And I, I definitely agree with you because that's um, where we where we usually start um, with some of the misusers is is by allowing them medications which is prescribed by uh, providers and those people become more and more adaptive to using the medication every two or three hours versus every four to six hours as prescribed. And when they continuously abuse the medication or misuse the medication, that's where we get into the um, misuse of the medication instead of substance abuse. Yeah, and so then still tucking along with that question and tying it to mental health. So is there a certain mentality that I guess snaps or you should be aware of to know that, okay, you're at the point of misuse. And I particularly talk about more so, not the prescription, but we talk about alcohol or when you talk about, um, I guess, non-prescription drugs, even with marijuana that, that's legal, you know, I guess in some states, is there still something to be mindful mentally that lets you know, okay, you're dependent on this versus it's, it's, it's recreational? And assuming that that's correct, I don't know if you guys feel as if any use is, is misuse, but at what point should someone be aware that there's a trigger and that you're bordering that line or perhaps crossed over 
to misuse? So I'll, I'll start with that. So when we look at um, individuals who are u- utilizing cannabis or cocaine or whatever drug of choice, we usually, we typically look at um, what we call a dual diagnosis on some of these patients. A lot of patients who present with um, antisocial personality disorders or bipolar, psychosis, depression, and anxiety, a lot of times they will utilize these drugs to make them feel better and not really uh, realize that they are growing dependent on these drugs. For whatever reason, these um, personality disorders and um, psychiatric diagnoses tend to lean toward substance abuse or substance use disorder in these particular groups. Now, when we look at those who are um, abusing the or misusing alcohol and misusing cannabis, we look at patients who have anxiety and and depressive disorders. A lot of times what they think is that if they use these medications or if they use these drugs, uh, they feel better. And they are not realizing that these drugs are literally killing their neurons, their brain cells. And what it's doing is causing them, if they don't have an addictive personality, it's it's actually leaning them more toward those personalities. Family members, friends will actually see a change in their personality. They, uh, the mood swings get worse. They become more aggressive, even with, even if they're not, what we label a substance use dis, uh, disorder patient, they can be actually a non-substance user and they can still um, have these traits as if they were addicted to that medication or to those prescriptions. One question. On the so, street prescription. <laughs> so I'm curious, you mentioned something about um, uh, an abuse or an addictive personality. How does one person know that they're maybe susceptible to addiction or more susceptible to addiction than another person? Is there, uh, is there any, has the science progressed to help to identify people that are high, uh, aside from the mental health issues, someone who's otherwise a normal, not normal, but who who does not struggle with any mental health issues at all or has a good psychiatric health. Is there a way to know that they are a little bit more susceptible to addiction than other people and to forewarn them to prevent exposure, certain exposures, mm-hmm. even trials? Mm-hmm. Um, there are different tests, but I didn't... Um... What we normally look for are genetics. So um, a a genetic predisposition can actually um, be one of the the, uh, caveats that we look for in patients. If your parents um, were drug abusers in the past and are no longer, those people, the, the children of those parents are the ones that we can monitor more. But as far as testing, um, I'm pretty sure that there are, but I cannot name it for you. I'm so sorry. No, no, you're fine. I can, name it, but, um, can I can I chime in? Sure. Yeah. 
So what I um, and I'm so what I don't want us to do is I I want to I want to make sure that everybody that's watching understands that there's a spectrum. Like you know we don't want to think that um, just people with mental health problems suffer from addiction. Like um, and so uh, there are like while mental health and addiction and and substance use disorder can mental health issues and, and substance use disorder can coexist it's not always that so when mm-hmm. you talk about risk factors because that's my wheelhouse like with risk because my main job is to um increase protective factors and decrease risk factors in communities and in families um, for substance use disorder and um, suicide. Um, we got to look at things like ACEs. Like that's the big thing right now. If you don't know what ACEs are, adverse childhood experiences. Um, we got to look at environment. So <clears throat> because people in my family, like I might have a genetic dis- predisposition to um, <clears throat> addiction or I might have an addictive personality environment, like that loads the gun, but my environment as well pulls the trigger. So if I if I know I'm genetically predisposed to be addicted to cocaine because I like the high that I get from caffeine, you know, I'm like, oh, I probably should not try cocaine, but I've also never been presented with the opportunity to try cocaine either. Mm-hmm. So those protective factors that are around me, whether it be the environment that my my uh, parents um, kept me in, you know, whether it was that family connection, whether it was me playing sports or whatever. And one thing I want to draw your attention to, right, and I did this to kind of make a sly political statement or whatever, is I changed my my pronouns. I put my pronouns up beside my name because that's a protective factor just inviting a person to be called what they want to be called. Like that's a huge protective factor for both um, substance use and suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with you on that because environmental factors are, are, are um, in our communities in our uh, communities when you are having issues, um, police brutality, um, uh, poverty-stricken areas, underserved areas, healthcare, the lack of healthcare access in these areas, all of these are stressors on every individual or family, and particularly in our um, underserved populations. So in those environments, as as you alluded to, those environmental factors, if you're in an underserved area, in these areas, you're gonna find more liquor stores on every corner than you will a health food store. You're gonna find fast food stores. So if you have an addiction to food, you're gonna have fast food stores and soul food stores in these areas. And, and this is what they adapt to. So it's all about adaptation to what your environment is. And so I definitely agree with you on that. One more point that I wanted to make too, like, and and we have to recognize, and this is part of, um, this is part of us, you know, recognizing things in ourselves, you know, like when it, when science says like, when do you think it becomes a problem? A lot of times when you think it is a problem, 
You know, so if I sit down, like a lot of people don't know that people who sit down and have that glass of wine every night, same time, they do their routine to have that glass of wine every night. That's actually withdrawal. And Dr. Bean could probably speak to that. Like you're you're actually, um, you start alcohol withdrawal about two hours after your last drink. And so when 24 hours later, you feel like you need a drink again, whether it's one glass of wine, whether it's two beers or a six pack, like you're actually experiencing withdrawal. So when you feel like that, when you feel like you can't go without it or that, oh man, I'm, I'm drinking and now I'm not able to get my work done or, you know, I overslept and was late for work, then maybe there is an issue. You know, people, people just have to be in tune with themselves and understand that. Is there an earlier indicator, uh, for example, maybe family members? Because mm-hmm. I would imagine that uh, often the individual himself or herself or their self, uh, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, oh, themselves. Um, the, the, uh, they typically don't recognize it as early as family members. Is that, would that be an accurate statement? And so maybe one of the key indicators is when family members start saying there's a problem, even if you haven't acknowledged yourself that there is even a possibility that there could be a problem. Is that a fair statement? Very fair. That's accurate. Mm -hmm. You you know, when we are growing up, our parents, some of our parents are extremely protective of us. And they monitor everything you're doing from friends to phones to computer access. All of these things are part of a parent's guiding their children. So once they become teenagers, what seems to happen is we loosen loosen the grip of their lives and we allow them to be those teens. And what happens is that when their personalities begin to change, we notice the change in their personalities. And then we, we relate it to be, oh, they're just teenagers until they, the mood start and the aggressiveness begin. The parents, the siblings are the first people to see that, but they ignore the signs that are there. And as a parent, if I've noticed these signs, what I'm going to do is ask my child, you know, what is going on with you? We no longer have conversations with our children. What we do is we allow their phones and the social media to guide them. When in fact, as long as they live in your household, you need to guide them because their brains are still developing and we tend to forget that. And so what happens is they start making poor decisions. And then we say, well, you know, that's not like my child. Well, what is your child like? Have you, you know, had any communications with your child since they turned 13, 14 years old? Because at this point they start to, um, rely more on peer on their peers than they do on their parents. And we relinquish our rights to their peers and their peers begin to um, guide them into what it is that they want them to do or where they want them to go. And what I find a lot is that the reason a child first tries uh, a substance, be it alcohol or drugs, when they try these substances, usually a peer and sometimes an older sibling who encourages them to try, you know, you'll feel better. And then what they start to do is 
they feel this high on that first drug of choice. And then what happens is they continue to try to feel this same particular high that they had that first time. And when they, when, when they don't feel that high, this is when we start to see this addiction, uh, addictive personalities roll in. And this is when the parents are seeing the changes and are accepting the change versus them uh, talking to them to find out where this change is coming from. I got a um, shameless plug I want to throw in there. (laughs) So the conversation is, I love that you said that um, because it's so important. And one of the programs that I've implemented in my community that we try to spread in our community is called Talk They Hear You. And it's really about giving parents and it's it's a evidence-based program that SAMHSA has out. And I really just disseminate the information through the community. We give conversation, once a week, we send conversation starters to parents and we just spread this throughout the community where it's like, we'll usually attach it to something that's going on. Just something like say, hey, you know, when I was young, you know, my my friends did this. What are you guys doing nowadays? Just like an open-ended question to start the conversation. So I'm gonna plug my text back uh, campaign right now. <laughs> if you are interested in getting those um, Thursday uh, conversation starters, you can text TALK, T-A-L-K, to 85775 and just complete the prompts and it'll opt you into our um, text blast campaign where you as a parent every Thursday will get a conversation starter and be able to use that to talk to your kids. We'll definitely put it in the comments, but it sounds like you guys are saying it's kind of like a chicken and egg thing here in terms of you don't know which comes first, whether it's the mental illness or the substance abuse or depending, I guess, your background, it could be the substance abuse because that's what you see. And then it um, unfortunately leads to a mental illness. But when we're talking about then addressing it, can you simply remove the substance without addressing the mental illness or does the mental illness need to be addressed first? before trying to tackle someone to remove the substance? Because I'd imagine, I mean, just from from my understanding of people, we are innately going to draw or worship or be addicted to something. Uh, And, you know, it it really does take us to figure out what it is that that we are drawn to and are addicted to, but we are just by how we're built, particularly if you're of the Christian faith, you know you're built to worship something. Um, and so if you remove the substance, you're essentially probably going to replace it with something else, whether that's another substance or, or something more productive, you know, that's to be determined. But as professionals, are you recommending, hey, address the mental illness first, and then we can get to the removal of the substance? Or you're saying, hey, you've got to figure out a, something in your head that removes the substance and then seek treatment for your mental illness. So my job, my job is to um, intervene before the substances come in place. So primarily what I try to do is make sure that they are deeply rooted and, um, and, and grounded before. So we introduce those things like um, spirituality, like talking to kids about getting tapped into something, like whether it's just mindfulness, whether it's church whether it's, you know, a Bible study or whatever, or whether it's just standing in nature, you know, it's about getting connected. Like, do you have positive friends? 
Do you have family support? If you don't have a, a good, strong biological family, do you have chosen family support? You know, like, do you have mentors? Like, so my job is trying to, to build that up so that I can teach them to be addicted to something good. And then once they, once they probably seen somebody like uh, Dr. Bean, um, then my job is to try to round that out again, like, you know, get all of those things back together. Right. So you're more on the preventive side, but what about the remedial? Correct. So by the time they get to me, they already have both problems. So my job as a provider is to identify um, and empower that patient. Because a lot of times we want to remove these things from these people. And, uh, you know, the dopamine, that's like their pleasure principle there. And so what or how can I replace that pleasure principle that they felt for so long before they saw me? So I would, in fact, work on both. I would have to work on the behavioral health aspect as well as the um, uh, substance use disorders as well, because you can't work on one without the other. I just think that the duality of both being addressed um, is better than just doing it individually. Just like with um, therapy, when you have uh, substance use disorders and it's rounded with a behavioral health, if you treat one without treating the other, then you're not really making a large uh, progression in that person's life. And when you are empowering that individual to become a part of their healthcare plan, uh, then it's easier because they know their limitations. They're going to know what it is that I feel that I can do um, by limiting some of my um, substance use and you know, explaining to them how the substance use actually uh, intensifies their behavior health. I think that being honest with them, with the, with the individual, meeting them at their point of need with behavior and substance and trying to um, integrate their, their, their health care while they're with you. Because I, I'm not sure, but I'm sure uh, you know that, and Dr. Williams, you know as well, that a lot of the patients, if they come to you and you're so aggressive with them on their first or their second visit, they're not returning. So you have to develop a relationship with them and you have to see why they're using, you know, when did they start? And, you know, you develop that relationship and this history about the individual is so important because a lot of times, especially with our women, with our female patients, when I first, when I first got into mental health or behavior health, I was so surprised with how many women or young ladies or adolescent females that I treated who had been abused by their father or their brothers or cousins and uncles and friends. And these young ladies are less than the age of 13. And when you hear them tell you that they have been abused sexually since the age of five, and they use these drugs to actually numb the pain, try to forget, you know, 
the situation, but the PTSD or the post-traumatic stress continues to replay over and over. And the only time they get relief is when they utilize those drugs. And so you have to, you know, you have to deal with the trauma of what they experienced and you have to deal with what they're dealing with now, the PTSD, where they continue to replay it. So when we say that we want to, we want them to stop these drugs, then we have to do it in a safe manner. We can't just tell you to just end these drugs now, because a lot of times when you have these trauma victims, they're more suicidal. They don't have the protection that they need. And, you know, as a young girl, as a young lady, you look for your parents to be your protector. And when they become the person who destroys your life, who do you have to lean on? Who do they have to reach out to? Grandparents are dead. And my sisters went through the same thing that I went through. And they're all dealing with the same traumatic event the same way. So you have to be able to address both the behavior health as well as the substance abuse and bring that together for that patient to be able to move forward with life and allow them to regain the power that they lost because someone took away the power from them at a young age. We have a viewer comment says, how about teaching or learning positive cognitive skills? Does this get learned at the home or in, in classrooms? And if they're not really being taught, I'm going to expound on that. If they're not being taught at home or inadequately taught at home, where does uh, the average person seek these positive cognitive skills um, to learn how to deal with things like stress? So, you want to take that, Dr. B? I know I can. You can go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so um, that's my job, huh? <laughs> um, so a lot of school systems now um, have social emotional learning departments um, and they they are trying to. It's been a dramatic shift because I don't remember any of this when I was in elementary school, middle school, or high school, the, the biggest thing that, the only thing that I remember was D.A.R.E., D.A.R.E. to keep the kids off drugs, right? The police mm -hmm. used to come talk to us about that. I think I might have seen a, um, a, a, like, liver cirrhosis or something like that. They brought that in, too, like a liver or somebody who was drinking. But that's all that we used to do. Now you have these school systems are shifting, and they have social-emotional social learning departments that are implementing programs like some of the ones that I actually train in in schools across the country. So there's a big push, but we're kind of behind the buck because we're dealing with um, we're dealing with, for lack of better terms, and I hesitate in saying this, but we're dealing with a damaged generation right now, mm. because if you if you look at if you look at the layers, so Dr. Mark, your mother was of the, the generation where you just do it because I say do it. You know, I, I said it, you do it, don't ask no questions. Mark's of that same generation too. Huh? <laughs> well, so that's what I was getting ready to say. So I was getting ready to say, so we think like, you know, we think my parents, my parents raised me that way. I turned out fine. Now I'm a doctor and 
hosting a show and doing all these great things. So we oh, that head. To our parenting, right? <laughs> yeah, I didn't say any sense. You know what, Sonia? I mean, people say great things about me. I can't help it. I mean, you have to say great hey, things. Hey, if about I didn't yourself. hear it here, I wouldn't believe it. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> until, until we have that kid that's like, you can't parent me that way. And then you like, whoa, you know, like, am I damaging my kid? Like, am I like, what just happened here? Like, and you keep saying, like, you're going to do it because I say so. And you keep trying to implement that parenting style that you were taught. But if you are um, growing and evolving like a Dr. Mark, you know, learning new things, you say, wait a minute, like, how can I, how can I learn to better parent you? Like, how can I approach this differently? But sometimes you got some older kids and you got younger kids. You like you to damage the first couple. And then now you got that younger one. You like, okay, I'm gonna get it right this time or what, but I'm saying this happens a lot now, like where it's like, okay, we're trying to figure it out and it's a push, but we've already done so much damage um, that, it's almost like you got to let some of that wash out of the, uh, you got to rinse that out the cup and put something different in there and get a different taste. Does that, am I making sense to anybody? It does, but I imagine parenting is just a whole different conversation because at least from my perspective, because a kid isn't doing what you say, doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong either. And so, you know, it'd be kids or it's just, I imagine that's just complicated. And as a parent, you kind of do the best that you can with the tools that you have. But nonetheless, I, I don't want kids to feel like they're off the hook to be able to say, oh, it's your parents' fault because they didn't realize that they shouldn't parent you that way. When, you know, sometimes we just have kids that feel more entitled to live how they think is best um, without taking into account the, the lack of knowledge that they have of the world either. Yeah, yes, but no. Yes, and that's what I'm going to say. I agree with you. And, you know, we have this. See, Latrice is learning. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning. <laughs> not negate the thing that she said before by saying but. But she's learning now to say. And. <laughs> Just like her, she, her, right? Go ahead. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Exactly. We joke. We joke about that. We joke about that, but it it is actually very important to to learn some of these uh, very subtle, um, I guess, uh, implications. Things that we imply by something that we say without even really thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I, I read something on the on the uh, on Facebook just a while ago. It said ten things that that really have an underlying meaning of shade when it's a compliment. Like, oh, must be nice. You know, something like that. Uh -huh. Yeah, you say, yes, it must be nice. But underneath it, it's saying, really, I'm hating on you for this type mm -hmm. of thing. And we don't pay attention to the hidden meaning behind some of the things that we say. I'm sorry, I interrupted you, Latrice. Go ahead. No, you're good. You, you right. You hit the nail on it. She, she knows you, Mark. Go ahead. Bless your heart. I moved to the South and people saying bless your heart. And I'm thinking it's a compliment, but it's really shade. Like, I'm like oh, you think I'm stupid, huh? <laughs> but, yeah. I haven't heard so, that one. Yes. Yeah, so, so yes, yes, I agree with heart. you. And, and 
um, some of the the cultural shift too is is being more trauma informed. So, like you have to, I, we say parenting, and I just picked on um, Dr. Mark because I could, I can, but um, it's really just our our um, community as a whole. Period, and we have to be when a child is acting out. It's not always that. It's, it's something you got to instead of saying, oh, you just want to be bad and you just want to do you almost got to say, OK, what happened to you? Why are you doing this? I, I took a different approach. My kids were in the car acting crazy while I was driving from Georgia to Ohio. My boys in the back wrestling around. I told them I tried. I went I went through the whole gamut like stop it or I'm gonna beat you. You better stop or I'm going to take the video game, you know, so now I'm taking something for them. First time, now I'm going to take something from them. It didn't stop. So I'm like, okay, how can I take a different approach? What is it that they need? They got a lot of energy. They've been sitting in a car for four or five hours. So I pulled over at a um, gas station. I made them do four rounds, 25 push-ups, 25 jumping jacks, 25 sit-ups, four rounds. They got in the car and went to sleep. Wow. <laughs> I got what I wanted. They got what they so, needed. So basically, Latrice is saying, cater to your children and figure it out <laughs> so, <laughs> so that you meet their needs without having to push your own needs on them. Is that is that what we're saying, Latrice? That cater is shade, but um, if that's how you see it, then okay. <laughs> Bless your heart. Um, <laughs> When they asked that the question was about the uh, cognitive, uh, where they can reach out or seek cognitive assistance, is it at the home or, you know, back in the day, we would say um, it takes a village to raise a child. And that's the same concept of this question that um, was posed. I think that cognitive uh Cognitive therapy begins at home. It also there's also uh, an area for it or space for it in school, in your church, and definitely counseling. So when we look at that aspect, that's our village. Those are the people who are involved in our children's lives and in our lives on a daily basis or weekly basis. So our children are seeing them, uh, seeing these this group of people. Um, who really have guidance or who can guide them to do what they need to do. And so that would definitely help. But then you have to think about some of these parents who are like, I don't want you saying anything to my child if I'm not here and I don't approve of you saying anything. So that I think that we've lost the art of the village by uh, by not allowing adults to help to guide our children in a positive way. And there are people who are harsh, harsher on your children than they are on their own, but sometimes positive criticism helps us to grow. And, you know, you may do something different, like Latrice, when she made the kids get out of the car and do a round of military exercises, you know, that helped. And so, you know, I may not take that approach. I may use something different. Like, okay, we're going to stop here. We're going to eat. And 
you know, we're not getting candy or any sugary drinks or anything to that magnitude. But, you know, we all have different different parenting skills. But when we come together, it's, everything is inclusive to help us to grow. And so I think that with that question, those are the um, villagers that we reach out to. I think when I'm listening to that, I guess a thought just occurred to me, and that is that, well, maybe every behavior has uh, has a um, a nidus or, or a, a cause. You know, we don't just randomly respond, uh, particularly in a negative behavior without any type of provocation. And and that provocation is not always just the devil in him. You know, that's, <laughs> that's where we get this mindset a lot of times. The older mindset is always just the devil in him. He's just acting out. No, there's a reason why people respond. Uh, for every action, there's an, always an equal and opposite reaction. I don't know if that applies here necessarily, but every action produces some type of reaction. And it requires a lot more cognitive work to identify what actually provoked this action. If I walk home and, you know, and I see that somebody or if I see my child or my spouse or my friend or whoever, all of a sudden make a dramatic change in their behavior, I don't just automatically think like, oh, well, that's just them. Is that time of the month, whatever? Uh, we should, if it's if it's going, I you know, you're the it. only man. Out here. <laughs> <laughs> he was doing so good. <laughs> shade, shade, shade. He saw that cliff and just kept walking. <laughs> I only saw it after I said, "I was like, Ooh. But the point is, is that we maybe we shouldn't just so readily dismiss it as not having having uh, some pr- provocation that needs better exploration. And without knowing the root of the cause, you can never really uh, adequately address the problem. And, and, you know, to that point, I think that sometimes we um, can create spaces for addiction. So if 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 I'm expressing a need and you're telling me that that, so if my kids are expressing a need to express energy, they're like, oh, I got all this energy, but mommy keeps telling me that having energy is wrong because every time they express their energy, I'm saying, sit down, be quiet, shut up, don't do that, stop, 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 stop. So they they learn to, you, the message we're really sending is that that's having energy is not a good thing, suppress it. And so when they grow up, and they have access to things that might suppress their energy. Ooh, I'm feeling anxious. You know, I can't sit down. I can't, um, you know, I don't want to, I can't concentrate on a Zoom call or in a classroom. Instead of going to teaching them how to shift and go to do something healthy, like, okay, maybe you need to go run on the treadmill for 10 minutes. Or maybe you get you some of those little things that, like, I, sometimes I have, like, Play-Doh or something that I'll play with in my hands while I'm on a Zoom call or something, just because I know I have that, I wanna move, I wanna, you know, move into the screen and do all that, you know? <laughs> like I'll, I'll use those things as tools, but instead what we do is we shift to something that might be a depressant to say, no, you know what, I'm, and if we don't teach them how to shift and pivot like that, and we just continue to tell them, no, that's bad, then they're like, well, all right, so then when I, feel like this, maybe I need to take this pill or I need to smoke this weed to calm my nerves or I need to do whatever to bring that feeling down. Um, 
Yeah, so that's what I think about that. The other thing is stigma. We need to talk about that too. I want to throw that in there. <laughs> I do hear, I hear Sonya just screaming in her because she's like, well, where's the <laughs> discipline? Where do you teach people <laughs> discipline? When you just enable any type of behavior, say, well, this is normal behavior. Yeah, this is normal. Um, and, and this might even get me in a little bit of trouble um, because I think Latrice, you and I had this conversation just recently about saying, you know, where do we set boundaries? Because if you don't really set boundaries um, and enforce those boundaries, then children or whoever else, people become lawless. And so, uh, yeah, I get where you don't want to always condemn a certain behavior because it has it has an origin. It has a cause for that. But somehow or another, you have to be able to uh, direct that and enforce some accountability for your choice and uh, for mediation of whatever bad behavior comes as a result. And I agree. And it's one of those, like with my parenting style and I was watching the chat, um, Sherry in the chat says that's what it sounds like. But this was back when um, Sonya made the comment about just letting the kids run crazy. <laughs> in the chat, There are boundaries. So if I, if I allow my kids to have a voice and give them the tools to shift, you know, and to teach them how to address one of my kids, he, his attitude, like he just goes from zero to a hundred. So I, I make him meditate. But at some time, at some point, because I've allowed them and I've given them the tool, there does, they do hit that boundary sometimes where it's like, okay, I don't have time to think about what you're going through right now. Let's go. You know, like, and, and I feel like they, I feel like, and I'm trying it because I feel like just like y'all medicine, I'm practicing parenting. You know? like, um, so is Mark. I, <laughs> I feel like... I did it right, though. Is that shame? I did it right. <laughs> I feel like that when I do say, when I do say, okay, get over here, let's do this, that they're more likely to respond if I'm not always in fight or flight with them all the time, you know, like. <laughs> I agree. So you mentioned you want to talk about stigma in our last couple of minutes here. Uh, what what exactly did you want to address with regard to that? So when we talk about mental health, when we talk about substance use disorder, when we talk about suicidal ideation, the big thing, like to even get to Dr. Bean, and she touched on it a little bit, is a huge hurdle, particularly in our community. We we are taught that I'm taught that my dad made a comment to me um, a couple months ago. Like I was just running and doing everything, like you said, working and lugging my kids and doing all this. And he was like, "You're," he was like, "You're such a strong black woman." And I heard him, and I felt the compliment that he was trying to give me, but I also felt like I don't want to be that. You know, I don't want you to. I don't want to have to be strong all the time. And so sometimes we with our language sometimes or just our culture we tell people like oh you got to take this you got you got to be a down chicken and take whatever your man does to you you know if you feeling a little down and sad dust yourself off and get up and go outside and do something like no sometimes we need to go get help and we need to be open enough like where even as parents, we need to not be so rigid so that our kids can come feel comfortable to come to us and say, I got a problem. And then you can be that connector to somebody like Dr. Bean. 
just like my kid would say, I can't breathe, you know, and, and is coughing and I'll be that connector. He'll come to me and I'll say, okay, I need to get you to a otolaryngologist. <laughs> Dr. Bean, you have any final words you wanted to share? With yes. Us? I mean, I really love the way you, the way you pivoted to that, because that is so important for us in our areas, in our neighborhoods, in our families. We have for years told our family members that if you seek counseling, you're crazy. So for years, we walk around and we are those crazy people that we've been identified by from our families. And it's as if, you know, if I come to you, if I have counseling, you know, you can't tell a soul that I have depression or anxiety or whatever the case may be. Because we've been made to feel like that is such um, a no-no to seek counseling. What's a no-no is when you don't seek it and you know you need it. And I just feel like when we, when we treat patients or when we see our family members and we see them acting out, and I think we addressed this earlier, when we see them acting out, we don't say anything about it because we think that this is a part of life and this is a part of who they are and what they're supposed to be doing. But no, mental health, behavior health is just like being treated for diabetes, hypertension, tonsillectomies, any medical uh, indication that you need, you need medication, your, your provider is going to educate you about your disease process. That's the same thing that we do in mental health. We have to be more cognitive of what we say to our family members and we need to encourage them that there's nothing wrong with seeking help because those are the people the people who are seeking help are the ones who are going to stabilize your family and we don't see it as a stabilization because we needed help when we were younger and we never sought the treatment that we needed to take us and carry us through life. I hear thank you. you guys so much. <laughs> thank you. I hear, uh, I guess if I were going to sum up some of this, I would say, if you see something, say something. Uh, and when you see changes in behavior, don't be afraid to say something. And that can go from uh, yourself being self-aware that you're now having some problems and may, my mood has been changing for a period of time. Maybe I need to say something. It could be for family members who start seeing changes in their family, um, their loved one's behavior. Say something. Don't be afraid to say something. Find out what's going on. There is a nidus for this. And even as professionals, maybe coworkers and friends. Um, and I would imagine that you see this often and, and, and feel a little bit more empowered to do that as a uh, practicing uh, medical professional and health a health provider, healthcare provider, <clears throat> that you start seeing some changes and or um, hearing some of the uh relayed information that's given to you don't just ignore those things because it can be the first steps to to the prevention of what may follow afterwards i want to thank you both for joining us here today on the roundtable consult what a fascinating conversation today and i wish we had more time to talk more there's so many more uh topics <laughs> that we still <laughs> need to get into and the two of you with your expertise are phenomenal with that so thank you again thank you thank you 
So thank you so much, guys, for tuning in. We're going to continue our conversation next Saturday on mental health. And that's next Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. You can always catch some of our old episodes, including including this one on your favorite podcasts, um, whether that be Apple, Spotify, whatever your favorite platform is. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. This has been another episode of the Roundtable Consult. Listen to this or other episodes at your convenience on your favorite podcast directory or listening app. Or catch us live every Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, 11 a.m. Eastern at facebook.com forward slash roundtable consult. Tune in live and join the conversation.